1: It's the summer of 1816, and five English writers are stuck inside with nothing to do. The writers are Percy Shelley, his wife Mary Shelley, Mary's stepsister Claire Guermont, Lord Byron, and John Polidori. They are staying at Byron's rented villa just outside Geneva, Switzerland. It's summertime, but you wouldn't know it by looking out the window. It rained almost every day. This became known as the year without summer.
0: What are you going to do in a rainy summer? No internet, no television. They're, they're reading whatever books they can find. And as Shelley describes it, a volume of ghost stories fell into their hands.
1: The group read these stories and became so fascinated by them that they decided to hold a competition to see who could come up with the best ghost story.
0: Mary Shelley says, oh, I thought and I thought and I couldn't come up with a story. And then I had a dream. And that became her entry in this ghost storytelling competition a year and a half later is published as Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. I'm Deidre Lynch. I teach in the English department at Harvard.
1: Frankenstein is an icon in contemporary culture. From episodes of Scooby-Doo to various film adaptations to Halloween costumes, Frankenstein helped define the monster genre and style. We owe this reputation in large part to Hollywood, But Shelley's original tale offers us much more beyond just a spooky facade.
0: I cannot count how many times I've read it. Upwards of 20, 25, I would guess. It is absolutely one of those novels that changes with each reading and a novel in which one finds something new each time, partly because it has an almost supernaturally effective way of speaking to the concerns of the present. Uh, it's almost a prophetic work in all sorts of ways.
1: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor D.J. Lynch to discuss Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Who was Mary Shelley and how did she come to write such a magnetic work of art?
0: So often you see her called in biographies, a daughter of the revolution, meaning a daughter of the French revolution. Her parents were political philosophers. William Godwin, who's often considered the father of philosophical anarchism. Mary Wollstonecraft, who's the author of a founding feminist tract of Vindication of the Rights of Woman*, and also, like Godwin, a defender of the French Revolution.
1: Shelley was born in London in 1797. She never knew her mother, who died soon after giving birth.
0: She has something in common with her orphaned, abandoned creature in that respect, uh, just as the monster in the novel tries to learn something about his parentage by reading. Mary Shelley, I think, tried to learn about her mother by reading her mother's works.
1: Shelley's mother was a famed feminist writer. Her father was a journalist, novelist, and political philosopher. But Shelley received little formal education— Instead, she read books she found in her father's library and began writing stories of her own at a young age. In 1814, English poet Percy Shelley began regularly visiting William Godwin, Mary's father. Percy was drawn to Godwin's radical ideas and anarchist philosophy, but he was also drawn to Mary. Percy was already married, but that didn't stop him from pursuing Mary.
0: Basically, they fall in love. Mary Shelley is just 16 at that time, they start having secret trysts in St. Pancras churchyard, where Mary Wollstonecraft is buried. And this is a relevant detail for the novel because Victor Frankenstein's horrible dark arts involve grave robbing. And St. Pancras was a notorious site for grave robbers who would uh, dig up freshly buried corpses and provide them to rather criminal-minded medical students. The two, Percy and Mary, they run off to Europe together, and then they come back to England. Percy's always in trouble because of debt, because his father doesn't approve of his politics. He's all around a kind of dangerous guy. Um, By 1816, They have made their way to Switzerland, drawn there by the prospect of being next door neighbors with the poet Lord Byron, another dangerous guy, notoriously mad, bad, and dangerous to know.
1: It was among this company during that rainy summer of 1816 that Shelley wrote Frankenstein. It was first published in January of 1818 by a small London publishing company,
0: published anonymously. So in fact, a number of people ascribed it to her husband. And every once in a while, there's still somebody who insists, oh, a woman could not have written this book.
1: What What were her influences um, that she drew upon?
0: I would say that her parents' writings are influences, because one of the things that's very interesting about both William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft is that each decides that philosophy will have more impact if it's delivered in the form of a novel.
1: At the time of her death, Shelley's mother was working on a philosophical novel called The Wrongs of Woman, in which she explored how patriarchal society wrongs women. Shelley's father also wrote a philosophical novel called Things As They Are, in which he calls for an end to the abuse of government power.
0: So I think both of those works are gigantic influences, on Frankenstein, it helps to come from, I, I think, a very brilliant family. I think her husband's poetry and Byron's poetry were also influences. I think it's also in ways that perhaps we've lost sight of a response to the world she would have seen around her in 1816. The novel is getting written at a moment just after the end of a decades-long global war, the war between the British Empire and first revolutionary France and then Napoleon's empire.
1: The war ended in 1815, but the economic impact is still being felt in England. In addition, much of Europe was experiencing unusually cold weather. A year earlier, a volcano erupted in Indonesia causing a temporary climate change across the European continent.
0: So on top of everything else, I think we can see Frankenstein is one of the first works of, of climate change fiction. Uh, Harvests failed in 1815, 1816, as a result of the uh, volcanic explosion. People were starving. And I think that Frankenstein is very much the record of somebody who looks out at the world and sees enormous injustice. And who also knows, partly because her family responds so badly to her elopement with Percy Shelley, she also knows how it feels to be an outcast. She knows what it is to Already she knows what it is like to lose a child. So I think all of these things, the personal experience, the social conditions of the moment, her literary legacy as the child of Godwin and Wollstonecraft, her conversations with Byron and Percy Shelley, all of those feed into the novel in the most magnificent way.
1: What is the story told in Frankenstein? Frankenstein.
0: So Victor Frankenstein is a young and an ambitious scientist. In an act of hubris, he sets out to create life from death. He sets out, in other words, to usurp the role of God and play God himself. And so he succeeds, in collecting various parts of corpses as he raids tombs and goes to charnel houses, and he assembles them into one being. He says, I set out to create a being like myself, and he animates it with the spark of life. And just at the moment, you turn the page, (laughs) <laughs> you turn to a new chapter just at the moment that you're expecting this account of triumph. He relates an, a reaction of absolute horror to the it, it, when the creature whom he's created opens its eyes. He's just appalled and he runs away, he spurns it. He had said that he had wanted to create a new species that would bless him as its benefactor and its source. But when the first member of this species comes into being, he cannot handle, I think, the idea that it might have a claim on him. So when that creature Opens its dull, watery, yellow eyes, he says, and extends a hand towards him. He just runs. And the what happens next is is that we get a sort of a passage of a few months, there are sort of mysterious deaths in the vicinity, um, or at least one, the the death of Frankenstein's brother. And then he's reunited with uh, his creature, who in the interval has learned to speak very eloquently, and who insists on telling his own story. And he tells that story with a view to persuade Victor to do something. Create for me a mate. Create a female of my species.
1: The monster tells Victor that he has tried to fit into society and become a social being, but he has been unsuccessful. He asks Victor to create this female monster so they can run away together and live in the American wilderness, never to bother humanity again.
0: And Victor initially agrees in part because, and this is the thing about, about the novel, this monster is an incredibly persuasive, eloquent speaker who has a very compelling account of himself as a being who has rights, has a right to companionship, has a right to well-being. And Victor finds this account as compelling as we do, at least initially. And he starts to build the female creature, uh, once again, repeating the horrible tomb robbing that uh, obsessed him in the beginning of the novel. But then he changes his mind. And the monster takes revenge on him, kills Victor's bride on their wedding night, Then we get a sort of series, a a strange narrative of Victor pursuing the creature in order to exact vengeance on him. And the novel ends with the death of both.
1: Does the work try to describe how um, Victor does bring him to life? You know, does he use electricity? Were there there ideas about reanimating... Uh, flesh in the air that that you know futurists were interested in at the time.
0: Absolutely, they they were around. Uh, Galvani had used electricity to make frogs' legs move again. There are horrible experiments done. Uh, I think just the decade before Mary Shelley publishes Frankenstein on the corpses of recently executed criminals to see whether they could be reanimated.
1: In the novel, Dr. Victor Frankenstein creates this monster out of the body parts of dead people because he wants to overcome death. Again, there is a parallel between the book's protagonist and its author.
0: In the novel, it's made quite clear that this is a response on Victor's part to the death of his mother, uh, that just before uh, he does complete his mad experiment. He has a nightmare where he thinks he's grasping Elizabeth, his one true love, his soon-to-be bride, and it turns out that he's grasping his mother, and it's his mother's corpse, and the worms are crawling through the corpse. So there's a lot of heavy uh, uh, psychoanalytic uh, stuff going on at that point. in the novel, Victor wanting to be a mother in some ways as well, right? Because this way of bringing new life into the world does rather cut women out of the equation. And, And when he talks about kind of what he wants in creating this new species, He says, no father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I could claim theirs, the new species. And maybe one reason no father can so completely claim the gratitude of a child is that fathers must share that gratitude with mothers.
1: There is a sense it's the creature, you know, the brain... It, it didn't have any previous life. It it is a blank slate that has its own new personality based on its experience in the world.
0: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, and that's maybe sort of the register of Shelley's legacy from Enlightenment philosophers, right? That that the creature is going to be what his experience and more particularly his education make him
1: the monster learns to speak by listening in on the de lacy family for over a year he secretly lives in an abandoned structure that's connected to their cottage without them knowing he listens in on their everyday conversations this becomes his education
0: and he insists that his education would have disposed him to virtue had his experience not shown him that he was not going to be allowed To join the society that he was reading about, that he was learning about at second hand. I think that's really important. The film tradition has Victor using a criminal brain, uh, uh, marked as such, in fact, uh, you know, playing on the idea that the corpses of executed felons were those available to science in the 19th century. That is not part of Shelley's understanding of identity at all, that you could be born bad is just not part of the equation for her. That's very much a later 19th century, early 20th century racist, eugenicist uh, way of thinking that became part of the film tradition.
1: Okay, I'd like to move into um, themes. And I I think the most obvious place to begin is, what is this work saying about science? What do you think Shelley was saying? And what have other readers uh, interpreted as saying about, about science?
0: So I think for a long time, we have seen it almost as an allegory of scientific overreach of investigating and creating and inventing without thought about the implications of, of of the new things one is bringing into the world. So whether it's nuclear weapons, or genetically modified food, or artificial intelligence, I think Frankenstein has given people a lens through which to think about scientific advance and to wonder whether scientists should get, like, courses in ethics along with their uh, courses in cellular biology.
1: The novel also raises some important questions about political and social justice.
0: So... There are questions here about political rights, the rights of people who look differently from us. It's certainly, I think, been uh, easy for people espousing kind of the cause of the rights of the child to uh think hard, to use Frankenstein and and use it as a, a source for a new kind of moral thinking. It's said that when Frederick Douglass tells the story of how he illegally obtained literacy as a slave who's forbidden to learn to read in the antebellum South, he has the story of the monster's education in view, very easy to see that kind of that slavery is an institution that remakes humanity in monstrous ways. It's easy to see kind of white slave owners as occupying the Victor Frankenstein position. It's also easy to see that violence that protests that kind of racial injustice is in some ways foreseen by the story of the vengeance that the monster sets out to take on, on Victor.
1: Today, most people know this story simply as Frankenstein. The full title, however, is Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. The original Prometheus was a god in Greek mythology. He defied the other gods and gave fire to the humans.
0: When Benjamin Franklin uh, manages to uh, get electricity from lightning, uh, there are immediately depictions of him in 18th century America, 18th century France as a modern Prometheus um, in ways that I'm sure Shelley is remembering when she provides that subtitle for the novel. Prometheus in other versions of the myth also makes human beings from clay.
1: In Shelley's time, Prometheus was a symbol of excessive power, a god who created life and equipped humans with one of our most powerful tools, fire. But he was also a symbol of a new political ideology.
0: Prometheus is maybe a figure for the overreach of utopian politics, too, because at the moment of the French Revolution, and with the applause of a figure like William Godwin, Mary Shelley's father, the claim is made that you can begin politi- political society all over again you can start history over again at year 0 and that's a truly promethean enterprise it says we can throw out the past and 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 make something new and I think that is exactly the way the novel was read by its original audience. It was dedicated to Godwin, so the the, the political allegory was was certainly to the forefront. But we know that the Shelleys also were. Acquaintances with some of the most revolutionary chemists of the moment, people who, who are, are, are doing all sorts of experiments with, like, the isolation of oxygen. Um, science had a big body count in this period, um, a lot of experiments whose ethics would seem to us now to have been very questionable and I think that that's certainly part of the original reception of the novel as well. The fact that medical students are, are kind of paying people to dig up freshly made graves uh, did not kind of make people think all that highly about the ethics of scientists even then. It didn't take much more than that, I think, for those ethics to seem questionable
1: people call this the first work of science fiction. Um, How did it establish some of the conventions of that form of storytelling um, that we might still recognize today?
0: Science fiction is often fiction about the future. And Shelley's third novel, which is called The Last Man, and which is about a plague uh, that is coming Right, it's set centuries beyond its 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 date of writing. Fits the profile of a lot of science fiction better in some ways than Frankenstein does. It, I do think it's the first work of science fiction, but it shows you what a complex genre science fiction, in fact, is. That that uh, I wanted say that The Last Man, <laughs> her her third novel, also has title to be called that. There were certainly other works that were set in the future earlier than Shelley's. And there were certainly works about time travel before Shelley's, um, if one thinks of those as crucial ingredients of science fiction. If your definition of science fiction, though, is is one in which what is to the fore is a novelist exploration of the consequences of technological advance, then absolutely this is the first work of science fiction,
1: for sure. One more thematic area that maybe you've you've come across and thought through is it's um its environmental critique. Um how how are scholars or readers interpreting it through that lens? What What is it saying about the environment? Does is it is have something to do with climate change um, or apocalypse? What can we learn from that reading? So
0: we could see it as a novel about climate change in part because it is kind of written at a moment when it seemed as if the empire of ice was advancing across the globe. Uh, That kind of more and more land seemed to be unerable because of the volcanic explosion in 1815. I think we can see it as environmental fiction, though, as well, because it's a about an extinction, right? Victor creates this new species and then doesn't let it exist as a species, right? He won't make the mate for his creature. He's horrified at the idea that they might propagate, as he puts it, a race of devils that would kind of drive out humanity or extirpate humanity. And that's why he won't make the female creature so there is a question of what humanity owes to other species that I think is very central to the novel and that I think speaks to our current way of thinking about environmental ethics
1: yeah and as you as you describe it that way um, it's a kind of i don't know the right term, but it's human centric that you could read it as nothing else really matters except human comfort, even when a species demonstrates that it has dignity in the form of reflection and story, you know, and like experience. Um, so, you, yeah, you really could read it as um, not just like, you know, the environment, but of course its impact on all the species that we share this home with.
0: Yes, exactly. I mean, Victor's decision not to make the female creature is a decision that he undertakes in the name of humanity. And rather than kind of expanding the category of humanity to include the creature, the monster, he decides that he's outside that category, that he's a threat to us because he's not us. And therefore, the humanely responsible thing to do is to decide that. He has no future. And I think we just make decisions like that all the time.
1: To me, one of the great ironies of Frankenstein is it's it's a written work of great complexity and philosophy and nuance. Um, and yet in the popular imagination, all we can think of is this big lumbering green monster. Um, and I'd love to understand that story a bit more um, because in some ways, Hollywood and monster movies have become a huge part of our popular culture. Um, And you can trace it, you know, there is a path from Frankenstein, from this incredible story, which arouses so much interest and wonder. So I'd love to hear from you uh, as much as far as you know it, what happens when it's first published and printed how does the public react um and then how does it make its way into other forms of media um to um to eventually to hollywood um and and where it's remained today as as a you know a halloween costume
0: it's put on as a play really early 1823 so uh five years after the publication and and that's actually it's the stage tradition of Frankenstein is where we get a number of the visual tropes we associate with the monster. The greenness, for some reason, goes back to uh, the actor who decided to to uh, play the monster in face paint and and green gloves and uh, uh, other accouterments like like that. Film picks it up from theater really early. Thomas Edison makes a very short film of Frankenstein in 1910. So very early in the history of cinema when cinema silent, right? So everyone is, is, is silent. Uh, and uh, so it's not that the creature is unique in his voicelessness as he will become when we get to Boris Karloff um in the 30s. Uh, but one of the things that I think is notable about that production, which is the way in which this, too, is a very sympathetic creature. What happens in the 30s is, gosh, how to explain it? That kind of sort of criminology, pseudo racial sciences, those become part of the mix. And there's no, there was no reason to make Boris Karloff a silent, mute, grunting character in the first Frankenstein that that James Whale uh, directed, and 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 yet they do, and it's that. Uh, performance, right? With the bolts in the neck. um, And apparently Karloff put lead in his shoes so that he could only walk with this incredibly halting gait. None of that is in the novel. There's also a way, I mean, finally, what I would say about cinema is I think cinema is really attracted to this. And this is why Edison goes to the novel so quickly I think it's really attracted to the ways in which the novel almost gives us an allegory of the way the technology of cinema works. Cinema makes still dead matter move right, 24 frames per second, and you get the illusion of lifelikeness. So you can see why Victor's creation of life from dead parts, uh, sutured together, montage together, would seem so compelling for filmmakers at a moment when this technology was still very new.
1: The story of Frankenstein's monster remains popular, even for those who have never read the book.
0: In some ways, it's one of those stories people feel as if they know without ever having read it, in part because this novel has so thoroughly entered the realm of myth.
1: When Dr. Victor Frankenstein breathed life into dead matter, he took on the role of God. But as he found out, the capacity to create life is full of fraught ethical and philosophical dimensions. Shelley's Frankenstein reveals how our technical knowledge can outpace moral reflection and cause catastrophes of our own making. In our age, one with dramatic advances in technologies like artificial intelligence and bioengineering, Frankenstein reminds us to ask not just what we can create, but why we create. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Liza French and Faran Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, WritLarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.